there's so much mystery in the things that we talk about. So maybe woe is a good word. I don't know. But practice, at what point do we, do we examine our progress? At what point do we say, oh, this is working for me or this is not working for me? Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based sciences. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Sherry hit record. She says, I'm going to hit record and let's see how the magic happens. And <laughs> I'm loving that because the word magic keeps coming up all over the place in all my practices. I keep pulling this card. One of my clients gave me a deck of nighttime intentions or awareness. And I've pulled this card three times. Apparently, I need to believe in magic. And the sign on my wall says, Trust in the magic of new beginnings. And in my bathroom, at your daughter's bat mitzvah, you gave away magic in, what is that called? It's a carved out word. Kalina Tara, who's a local artist, she's amazing. You'll probably, if you're anywhere here in the United States, you probably see her cards. She's got amazing greeting cards, but she also repurposes, it's like recycled plastic that she does this process. I, I don't pretend to know how she does it, but she does tiny words, medium words, huge words. Like she really, you know, give her your word and she'll, she'll make it for you. I've given them as gifts too. She's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's great. Thank you for gifting me one. And it is like a stencil cut into this beautiful piece of thick black plastic. And that is on my mirror. So you started our conversation with magic and I had mm. to run with it. I love that. I'm going to put Colleen's link in the show notes too. If you have, and she does great. She's an artist, beautiful gifts. But last week, and I'm still sick. I was sick last week. And I mentioned that I was sick as a dog. And where did that come from? And I did go online. <laughs> I looked to see. I don't have it up in front of me. So it's by my, the, my best recollection. But it come, goes all the way back to the 1700s, where anytime something negative happened, they kind of blamed it on the dogs. Like even the Black Plague that was sort of, you know, transmitted through rats and other things, I guess also dogs. So I have two dogs. I love dogs. I know you're a big dog lover. Siva is part of many of these conversations. So we do, I will not use that term anymore. I will find another way. Like we, I think we talked about this before too, you know, killing two birds with one stone that my niece, when they were in Italy, they were talking to friends and they were like, oh my God, you Americans are so violent. And they were like, well, what do you say? And they said, we say feed two birds with one seed. Hmm. Right. Let's yes. do that. 
That is, oh, I like that so much better. I'm going to take that one too. Thank you for sharing. Uh, I love birds with one seed. Yeah. Language can light us up or it can dim us down. And so I'm looking for like even woo. I want to find a different thing for woo because magic, you know, or the the unexplained, the um, explainable, I don't know. We'll come up with a better word for woo since it seems so charged with negativity out in the, out in the world. Yeah. Maybe magic will be our, our, our word, our thing for at least a little while. We tend to like change things up every now and again. So, but for right now, I'm liking magic. I'm, I'm surrounded by it. And I think, you know, I've been reminded lately that mindset is everything and that, and I've been practicing and noticing the mindset patterns that I have. As we, I've talked about, I'm in a new place again. This is my forever home, so I'll be here for longer. But I can see that when I'm going into transition of settling, my patterns are some, I'm somewhat more aware of them, of noticing how I spend my time. Or sometimes, you know, we're talking about the evolution of practice today. And I've noticed that sometimes when I get stressed out, some people lean right into their practices when they're stressed out. I find that I busy myself doing things, trying to get organized and feel settled, feel grounded by doing and organizing, which is kind of counterintuitive because if I want to feel settled and grounded, I can do a settling grounding practice of walking around outside and being mindful of it. So it's interesting how my habits and patterns might reveal themselves to me. Yeah. I And that's, that's a beautiful way to kind of frame things. And I love that, you know, when we talk about the things we're going to talk about, I love how you went with the evolution of practice, which has a different feeling than the progress of practice, which is where I landed. And even though those words can be interchangeable, and they can mean the same things. It'll be interesting to see how they unfold in this conversation and are nuanced in different ways. So for me, the evolution of practice feels like where you start and as you're moving, how you evolve yourself in relationship to the practice and how that relationship grows over time. Progress of practice, and you'll, you'll talk about your ebbs and flows there as well, that I kind of feel like it's you know, this feeling like when we talk about progress, there's a goal setting that is involved. I'm progressing to toward something, which I think if you're an ascetic or you're someone who is, you know, dedicated to simple, to living the life of spirit without being a householder yogi like we are, that that's a different conversation. But progress also, like, where are we not progressing? Where are we stuck? You know, and how do we know if we're moving forward in this thing that we're doing every day that we kind of like or we love, how do we know? Like, I'll do things that people will say, oh, you've got to try this. And I try it and I feel no immediate reaction. I feel no immediate cause and effect of the thing, like the grounding, the earthing thing. I'm out there in my bare feet every day. I got sick a few days after, you know, this all started happening. I don't think there's a relational thing there. I don't think that's the cause and effect. But if grounding keeps from inflammation, then how did I get inflammation? So like there's, maybe that's not the thing. Like I, there's so much mystery in the things that we talk about. So maybe woo is a good word. I don't know. But practice, you know, at what point do we, do we examine our progress? At what point do we say, oh, 
this is working for me or this is not working for me? Those are all such really great questions. And I think they, for me, they, some of those questions come back to why am I doing the practice? And that's kind of my benchmark on, mm -hmm. am I evolving and am I moving forward? And sometimes I found for myself that the evolution and the transformation is to decide, I love that practice and I'm going to keep it exactly the way it is because it just fits. And then other times I work and work and work to try and fit my practice into a schedule or a box or a thing. And it just doesn't seem to work. And I was like, there's no evolution here because I feel like I am trying to force it to be a certain way that I have these preconceived notions of what a practice is, what it looks like, and I try and make it that. For example, and it's a, it's a fun little example, but it's very applicable to how my practice has evolved. I like, my practice starts with getting out of bed and turning on my coffee pot. It's the first thing I do in the morning is I plug in my coffee pot. Then I drink a big glass of water, go to the restroom, come back, and I have a cup of coffee in bed. And for years, I would be upset with myself that I didn't just get up and do my meditation practice because many of my teachers told me the best time to do this is first thing in the morning when you wake up. But my brain doesn't do that until about 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock. And I've had my coffee. I've done the brain things that are really intensive because my brain works really well for getting things done early in the morning, which is a surprise to me. And then I get up and I'm like, okay, now I start to do things. And so it's a small thing, but it was a mindset of changing that my practice, especially a home practice, is individualized to the things that feed my soul and the things that I feel that I need to do for me, even if they don't look like what I thought a practice should look like. Uh, absolutely. I totally agree. And I have to say, things feel different when I'm studying with a teacher than when I'm not. When I'm studying with a teacher, I will do everything that teacher says because they, I mean, I, I say that within reason. If there's something that feels completely unaligned or misaligned, of course, I'll, I'll be discerning. But typically that doesn't happen. It's the teachers that I've chosen to be with are people who walk the talk, are people who are out there doing these things. And I want to know firsthand, like even the Buddha said, don't believe me because I tell you, you, you got to do the thing. So from my 300 hour, they, the way that they taught meditation, there were milestones and stages and there was diagrams like this is, you've got to get through this to get to that. And I didn't understand the feeling of resistance I had to the, the diagram and, you know, if then statements that you do this and then that maybe because it just, it just didn't feel right in my body, but I did it anyway. And I studied it. And I, of course, you know, 12 years later, I'm forgetting all of it, but I do have my enormous binder from that time. And just really quick, they say that the four milestones, I won't go through the 10 stages of meditation training is uninterrupted continuity of attention to the meditation object. Like that's number one. Number two, sustained single pointed attention to the meditation object with exclusive focus. Number three, effortless stability of the attention, also known as mental pliancy and compliant mind. Four, 
Stability of attention and mindful awareness are fully developed, accompanied by meditative joy, tranquility, and equanimity, qualities which persist between meditation sessions. That's the one I want to focus on because the others, you know, even though I've been practicing for decades, my concentration, sometimes it waxes and wanes, it ebbs and flows. It's not always growing from here and getting more and more and more. Sometimes my humanity comes in and I'm just freaking distracted or something else is going on. And while I practice and that muscle is fairly pliant, it's also, you know, vulnerable. Um, and so just real quick, mindful.org, when we're talking about this path, you know, what is progress? What is evolution on these spiritual paths? What is the path? Well, from mindful.org, they say the path of meditation rewards patience and a willingness to adapt to what emerges next and to be honest with oneself when hard truths surface. Meditation is not something that occurs outside of life circumstances, including pain, illness, financial difficulties, loss, all of that. And I think that that's really important because with all of the rules that come with and all of the you know guidelines and milestones and stages and things that if you were a serious meditation student interested in becoming a great meditator, then that is something that would be required. I have learned from my own experience that I am less interested in becoming a great meditator than I am becoming a better version of myself through meditation. Mm. And so that is that fourth stage where it, it goes between sessions. And I'll sort of let this go and the stories will come out, but I can see that evolution, that progress on my path in my interactions with my family, in my interactions with my friends, and my interactions with strangers and animals and nature. Everything, my relationships are different because of the way that I respond to them. So I'll just kind of leave it there for now. You talked to about so many fantastic things in that very short sentence. But the one that really, uh, two things captured me, and that was you talked a lot about meditation. And the next thing that I was going to bring into the conversation was mindfulness. And there is a difference between the two being mindful. And so my mind-body connection and how I approached my mindfulness, and I just told you a story about it. Maybe I'll remember to tell it again is my mindfulness practice began with just becoming more attuned to the things that were around me, to noticing the sensations and the sounds, to lean into my own personal senses. What do I see? What do I hear? What do I smell? In a conscious way, because we already take in all that data, even if we're not paying attention to absorbing the data. If we're driving down the road, we're seeing all those signs that are going by, we're noticing whatever it is, where the sun ducks behind the clouds. Maybe we notice the scent of, you know, whether we're driving, uh, you know, in the Pine Barrens like I am now or driving out on 95, where there's a little bit more smog. So the mindfulness becomes and being attuned to my senses was the draw that brought me into a mindfulness practice or the one that I'm sharing as being the most, the most recent. I think my mindfulness practice really began without me recognizing it when I started touching people for a living. When I was stepping into other people's energy spheres, and just to say those words is not how I approached my practice. <laughs> it was very, very physical when I started as a massage therapist, but it was subtle 
And as I began to realize that I couldn't touch people without them touching me at the same time, and that this was an exchange, people were coming to me for body work, right? So I was the standard, they were the layer down, I was the giver, they were the receiver. And it was all very neatly packaged into that box. But then people started touching me. And it wasn't that they started touching me, it's that I started to recognize how that interaction was changing the way I approached, the way I understood the sense of touch in my fingers, the way interacting with my clients became beyond touch in noticing their posture on the table or maybe a scent or hearing their stories that their body was telling while I was working, either audibly because they were actually sharing the story or in unspoken language based on maybe I went a little bit too deep and they tensed or um, there was a fidget of two different things happening at the same time. There's just so much nonverbal communication. And I think that's when my mindfulness practice began. And once I started to realize it, then the evolution began of noticing it outside my operatory, noticing it in my daily life and starting to really depend on it um, where I would go out to my sit spot or my meditation or mindfulness practice, whether I was meditating or just in a mindful sit spot and just being so aware of the breeze touching my skin or, you know, the sun coming out from behind a cloud and feeling that warmth and the different sounds that surrounded me. So it's really hard. I think to speak about the evolution of mindfulness or meditation or the practices, because I find them to be so much of a felt sense that the words sometimes feel like they're very shy in really communicating what I want to say. I love that image, shy words. And you used a word I don't know, operatory. What is that? Oh, operatory. <laughs> Actually, it should have been more the dental word because I didn't really call my treatment space as a massage therapist an operatory. But when I was in dentistry, the room in which we offered dentistry, dentistry to a, a patient was called the operatory. And I worked in a dental center and they had like 20 operatories. So, you know, it was common language. What operatory is that patient in? And so, yeah. The common language for the dentist, but I had never heard the word. I love it. I love learning new words. But I love what you said about the feeling, because I think that we can look to experiences that we've had that tell the story, like you telling the story of feeling your, your clients also touching you back and that beginnings of awareness. I felt that when you were saying that. So whatever it was you were feeling, that story definitely brought it up. And Teresa, that was just beautiful. It brought up for me, and I wasn't even thinking of this before we came on, about uh, when I was taking care of my mom when she was dying. And, you know, mothers and daughters, it's a complicated relationship. We had, a, I, as far as relationships go, we had an incredible relationship. And there were still things that annoyed the fuck out of me. And I'm sure I annoyed the fuck out of her, too. And I found that my regular practice was not only something I desired for my life, but it became an essential tool for being with her fully. And I found that when I started my days every day with mindfulness meditation, 
my ability to hold those things that used that I would say used to annoy me. They probably still annoyed me, but I didn't feel compelled to react to them. I didn't feel compelled to allow them to direct my behaviors. And so rather than, you know, if she was eating something and I have, you know, whatever the misophonia <laughs> that my daughter diagnosed me with. And my mom was one of those people that I think started. I'd be listening to her eat would drive me fucking bananas. But when she was sick, I would, I, you know, whatever she wanted, whatever it was. And I was able to sit with her while she was eating and not allow my, my bullshit to get in between us in these last moments. And those last moments stretched out, thankfully, for a, a good long while. Um, but I did notice there was one day and this doesn't speak well of my practice because it was just one day and it didn't, it wasn't part of the cumulative effect. But there was one morning that I didn't do my practice. And it, mm. interestingly enough, was the one day that I got short with her. It was the one day that I had difficulty managing my own mindset and my own ability to be fully present. But that was, I will say, a win given the extended amount of time that we had to be together under those circumstances. So I will say that that felt very, very tangible mm -hmm. as a result of practice, a fruit of practice. I've also had the honor of being at the side of people who were making their transition from this body to the next, people who were in hospice and in all different stages with family members. And it brought me back to touch because at times they were awake and communicative and, you know, we could have conversations and there was that time that was gifted to like kind of settle up business and say what you wanted to say. But at other times of visiting and being part of that uh, care team, you know, and the care team was often my siblings, thank goodness that I have so many of them. If the person that we were working with, whether it was my parent or a sibling or my cousin or, you know, a, a good friend, I've found great comfort at the times where I just sat with somebody who was maybe sleeping or dozing or in whatever state they were, just with a hand on an arm or holding hands, comforted me. And Hopefully, and in my brain, this is how I processed it, was that, you know, touch is the sense that we cannot live without. Touch is so powerful of a communicator that in my heart of hearts, I believe that whether you're awake or not, the contact, the touch lets you know that you're not alone and that somebody is here with you at all times. I'm laughing because I feel the same way. And it took my brother when we were in the hospital room when my dad was going, I mean, he was within hours. I mean, it was like the next day he died. But I thought, oh, maybe dad would like his feet rubbed or maybe he wants to be touched on his arm. And so I thought, let me start here. And my brother was like, he might not want to be touched. Like, we don't know what he's feeling. He could feel like he's on fire in there and it might not feel good. And I was like, David, it's touch. It's love. It's us. I put my hand on his arm. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to narrate my dad, who had been unresponsive for a full day, takes his other hand, reaches over to mine and moves it off. And I went, huh, let me see if that was just, you know, an anomaly. So I did it again. The same thing happened. He took his other hand and moved my hand off. And we all started laughing. And I said, dad, I don't think that you're doing that to make me feel bad. I don't think it's 
I think you're just asserting your final, you know, desire, which was not to be touched. He, I think he obviously must have known we were there, but it just goes into the stories. Like again, after the because, mm. and it can feel so real and it, we can really like our mindset. It's like, of course, but you know, there are those moments. I'm a big hugger. It's my superpower. And sometimes please don't touch me. Like I just need some space. But I say that as someone who, who gets to be touched a lot, you know, so it's, it's really interesting. This thing of, of life, of living in these bodies, it's not yes or no, black or white. There's so much. That's why all yoga is kosha yoga. All yoga and meditation deals with the whole thing, the whole package. And I think that's why I get so frustrated with the medical system in this country is because it's so, you know, symptom-based and, you know, Let's let's get it after it starts. And like, let's only look at the body. Let's only look at not only the body, but the part of the body that looks like it's ailing the most, which could just be a piece of something else connected somewhere else. Don't yeah, get me started. I, I know, I know. There's a lot of reasons why we need all conventional medicine and mm. Ayurveda and yoga. There's, you know, they all fit together. And for a while, I agree there. Um, I find that there's a reductionist approach that is symptom-based many times when I visit a healthcare practitioner. And many times they give me exactly what I need. So it's not a poo-poo of no. system as an overall system. But as a yoga therapist one and a massage therapist, I spent a good deal of my time wondering how I could be part of the integrative medicine movement where we, I would be able to blend in and offer from that healthcare system. And I listened to one of my teachers speak after a yoga therapy research conference and was reminded that yoga is an ancient practice, an ancient set of practices of mind, body, spirit, and breath that is a holistic system unto itself that is its own healing. And we've made this distinction before, not necessarily curative, but healing system of practices that help us with whatever it is that we happen to be going through, whether what we're going through is our most exciting, happiest time of our life, or whether it is a challenging time that we're in, we have a, an entire system and that has its own tools and practices to help us heal and pick and choose the ones that are feeding whatever it is that I need at the time. And I think that's the evolution is the exposure to so many of the different practices that now I still feel like an infant in the whole thing, but also know that there's things that I can customize to how I'm feeling today and what I need to pull out of my practices for whatever it is that I need to do. So there's some consistency of practices that I love that happen every day, but there's also things that I'm like, today I need to. And today my I need to was I need to do a movement practice that involves balanced poses outside next to the lake. And that's what my practice was this morning. It started with a walk. It started with a sit spot that I was in and because I intend on living here for a long time, I began to imagine myself sitting on that same bench, looking at that same view for seasons to come and recognizing its change. 
And that's the value of a sit spot is to see those cycles and changes mm -hmm. that happen and to be able to go to the same place and notice how the world grows and changes and what happens. You make a great point. First of all, I want to say thank you for presencing the whole idea of the value of modern medicine. I think that it's not get rid of one over the other. It's not a, it's, it's about the integrative part. And if there was ever anyone that I would want to be with me to ask the good questions for, to a medical person, it would be you, Teresa. But this idea of sitting in the same spot, the sit spot, every day and watching things change around you over time, I think that is also a salient point for the Ashtanga series of the same poses every time, doing the same practice, what I think Pema Chodron says, staying in the same boat for a long time, because we can't necessarily see the evolution if we're constantly moving around and changing our practices according to our whims or doing all sorts of things if we're, again, getting bored and feeling like I just want to change. Because that sit spot might get boring at some point, but what are you going to miss? If you change it up all the time, you're not going to receive the value of that observation over time. And so I think we can observe our own growth and our own, and our own non-growth, our stuckness, all of this stuff. We can observe ourselves best when we're, when we're in the spot, when we're, we're you know, showing up with consistency to whatever it is. Um, but I love that image and I can, I have this whole time warp thing in my head of watching you evolve on that sit spot and watching nature sort of consume you in the best possible ways. And I say you, I mean me too, you mm -hmm. know, and I love that you said you're in your forever home. So you'll be here for a while. You know, there's this, this practice of impermanence comes up and it's, it becomes a part of our language without us even thinking about it. And this is like one of the reasons I let my hair go gray. I was dyeing it blonde for years and, and different colors. You know, that was a practice for me to begin to let go of the things that I think 20 years ago, I wouldn't even have considered it. I was like, no, do this, whatever. But that evolution of my own practice is about recognizing and embracing the impermanence and to start small, start small with letting the hair grow. Start yeah. small with accepting gravity in the body. Start small with accepting the things that have changed post-menopause. Accepting the changes as they go so that ultimately when the big change comes, when, when death is at the doorstep, and I, and I don't mean to be morbid, but I think it's an important thing to just acknowledge so that we're not shocked. Oh my God, it's happening to me. How could it happen to me? It wasn't supposed to happen to me. <laughs> that happens to all those other people, not me. In fact, on Mother's Day, I was reading a little bit of Making Friends with Death. No, it, it, it's, a, it's a joy. <laughs> and it is the day after Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day. Thank I know that you're not listening you. after Mother's Day, but happy no. Mother's Day to you, Sherry. And, and to you, to, Teresa. And a belated happy Mother's Day to all those moms out there. So there's just so many different things when we talk about the evolution practice. And one of the things that, I'm really passionate about is regressions. I talk about, we talk about progression and I've heard in almost every yoga class that I've ever taken and from teachers that I've studied with, I've heard the sentence, if you want to go deeper and then the next progression is offered. And that's great. I, I, I you know, I don't see any difficulty with that, but I, I rarely hear and if you've gotten to this space and realize you went too far, there's a regression where you can come back 
to the place that you just advanced from, or that the regression is looking like, and I felt this, this is why I'm saying it, like I wasn't able to do that next deeper step rather than I found an edge here that I'm really enjoying exploring. And maybe it was only at the very, you know, beginning of the expression of a pose, but for some reason, the shape is speaking to me. And although I know I'm capable of progressing to something that looks different, I'm really thrilled with the place that I am right now. And there's a story here. You and I talk a lot about the stories the body holds and the stories the body has to tell. And sometimes I have to regress back into an older practice and go back in order to move forward because I missed something. I, I went through it so quickly that whatever the story was at that point, it's still hanging out in the tissues, which doesn't mean I have to go back today or tomorrow, but at some point in time, that space is going to speak to me again. Mm -hmm. And it may be in what I might consider one of my very beginning practices where that story is accessible. I, I love this, this, and the language is so interesting because, you know, to regress out of a, a pose, to come back and to have that dynamic experience between progression and regression, the regression piece is not regression on the path. It's regression mm -hmm. in the moment that you're practicing, but it's still, like you said, in order to progress. So the language is just really interesting. Someone might hear that and think, oh, if I regress, does that mean I'm moving backward in my practice? Is that something where I'm, I'm, I'm going to old patterns rather than repatterning? Well, no, because by accepting, acknowledging this desire or need to pull back is actually repatterning old patterns that may have pushed you beyond your ability in that first place. So like, again, I just feel like our language also must evolve with the practice itself so that we can give people the, I'll say language, the words, the narrative to rewrite their stories, to be able to say, this is not, for someone who's a perfectionist, and like I've said before, that is not my demon, I have other demons, but I imagine it's got to be really hard to decide to not do something, but that would be progress. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Deciding not to do that. I mean, my father taught me that when I was young. He's like, if all the other kids jumped off the bridge, would you jump off too, right? There's a common se sentence, you know, that that is actually a bit of wisdom that comes out when you decide, you know, I know everybody's doing their thing, but it's not really what I want to do. And a director who once used to call us all turkeys, he'd say, you're all turkeys, you're all turkeys. And you know why he called us turkeys? Because one turkey would go out and put his head to the sky when it was raining and let the rain go into his mouth and drown himself and die. And all the other turkeys would see him do it. They'd all go out there and do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, you're all turkeys. I never heard the turkey story. <laughs> I didn't even think about it till now when you were saying if everyone jumped off the bridge and all I could hear was his name, Alan from Hampton Playhouse many years ago. He's gone and may he rest in peace. But he used to, he had a lot of really, he was sort of the Gordon Ramsay of, of, <laughs> You know, young theater directors. He was sort of a, you know, what was it? A steel fist and a velvet glove. Oh, so I do want to circle back to bird seeds, right? Feeding two birds with one seed. And just that it's 
ever since you said it, it's kind of been on my mind the whole time that we're talking is that reframing of the story and the words. And one of the things that I've noticed in the different, I taught, I've taught ethics in a lot of different ways. I was raised Roman Catholic. I have the yamas and the niyamas to fall back on. There's a lot of precepts and morals that we have of ways to live our life and, you know, things to do and what's good and what's bad, and what's moral and what's not, whatever all those words are. But one of the things that I think is a really great progression for me and evolution in my practice was taking what I learned, which would be the Ten Commandments, so I'm not poo-pooing any of that, but what yoga helped me to do was to switch them from negatives to positives. So that the wording of what I was doing, instead of thou shalt nots, um, which are good, you know, it helps me to understand, you know, what are good things to do and maybe what are not such great choices to make, but to switch them into positive brought them more into a way of caring for myself and being in service of self and in service of others in a way that wasn't so focused on what I shouldn't be doing, but how can I show up and serve in a different way, right? The practice of ahimsa, non-harming, right? To, to only do good. And my progression or evolution when I the first time I heard about Ahimsa, I was like, I'm a nonviolent person. I got it. But really, when you dive into it, there's a little seed of violence in all different, in all different ways within mm-hmm. me. And again, the evolution of the practice is to notice when that little seed gets activated. And maybe I'm not going to show up in a no harm sort of a way. But then to move it into, you know, caring for self, uh, which is also doing no harm, caring for self and caring for others, was a great way for me to reformulate it. But it also made me realize that for a good part of my life, it was easier for me to care for them than it was for me to care for me, to care for others versus having a real strong self-care practice. And I still struggle with that at times. I'll be like, oh, I have a lot of clients. I got to do this. I got to go take care of these people. And for a while, I may have done that at the expense of saying yes and giving up my own personal self-care time in service of. So there's a balance with all of it. There is. The first time I ever heard about the positive negative thing was at your house way, way back with Amy whose birthday party you were coming from and you got your ticket, um, who was in our first season. And um, it was after that that I actually rewrote the Ten Commandments in the positive and the yamas and the niyamas. But then it was still such an ethereal concept. And I thought the universe only hears positive. What does that mean? The other day, I actually heard someone say something that made it make all the sense. And it's so simple. And this is something I've heard before, but never connected the two. He said, if I tell you not to think of a pink elephant, are you going to think of a pink elephant? If I tell you to think of a pink elephant, will you think of a pink elephant? It's there. So it doesn't matter yes or no. You're still thinking of the thing that is put out there. And so that's the positive. And so to frame things in that way seemed appropriate. It seems like the right thing. And so I still find myself defaulting sometimes to the negative, but I, the awareness piece, the practice piece has me hearing it 
in the zeitgeist out there in the world and in my head, and I change it in the moment. So I'm not waiting for a retroactive experience to change the thing, which brings up a story that I was thinking about all of this in terms of evolution. Now, as an actor, we did a lot of awareness type things, but not contextualized in a spiritual you know, sort of way, not yoga or meditation, even though I've said before, we learned a lot of yoga poses that were never called yoga poses, but all in service of expanding and opening the instrument, this body, so that we could, you know, do our thing on stage. And so back in the day, I had, uh, I'd been working for a talent agency. I'm not going to use any names because I think that's, that's not a cool thing to do. But I had started as not a temp, as sort of a, what is it when you're in school and you do an internship? Intern. I did an internship. I worked for this talent agent and it was, it was miserable. He was really hard to work for and he wasn't a nice person. I don't, and I don't want to go into all of it because I, I'm looking at it from the person I am today rather than the person I was then who had to deal with him every day. And I think I even mentioned I could be on the phone with someone answering the phone. And before I could even get out to put on hold, he'd say, tell this asshole I'm not here. So conundrum, there I am, you know, I'm like eight, 19 years old, 20 years old and, you know, trying to figure this all out. So it had gotten to the point I allowed myself to get to the point of rage. I didn't manage the feelings every day. I, I expressed them to my friends, I, but always with like a big hyperbolic story about what went on at work today. And by the end, I went into his office and I just vomited all of my regret and all of my angst and all of the shit that I felt he had put me through all over him. And at one point I said something I'm not going to say, but he said, um, there, you've crossed the line. And I said, yeah, I know I crossed the line there, but everything else is right on the line. Um, and as I walked out to the elevator and he came out and he was like, can you come back and stay? I've got a meeting. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, I'll do this for the other guy, but not for you whatever. But I imagine I've had situations like that since where my responses have been very different. And they've been different because I have the presence of mind to know. And I know this is true because they're with, with the same people. If I respond to something or re, out of reaction and I'm sounding annoyed or condescending, which I will own for sure, or whatever the thing is, then I'm going to get back something that's going to exacerbate that. And it's going to become a continuum of energy that that energy is just going to beget itself. And it's never pretty. In the same situation where I come from love and I can feel it's kind of like that moment with my mom when she's eating, you know, I can take that moment and say, okay, what do I really want? I don't need for any ego gratification to win this in any way. What is it that I want? The end goal is peace. The end goal is resolution. And in order to get that resolution, I need to meet the moment with a sense of groundedness and calm and not that pent up rage that can, that can fester. And it doesn't have to be rage. It can be ugh, like, again, we're doing this again, or, you know, someone does, isn't fast enough or they're doing their job and you're like, what the fuck? What? I don't want to have to do this. Well, that person's going to react. Well, well, fuck you. And then you're to the fucks are flying and you know, who gives a flying fuck and all of that. If you just take a breath and say, does it matter if I'm, I'm a little annoyed? Does it matter? Like, just take a breath. This is another human being having her own experience. And that's how I can see the evolution. The progress of my practice is not necessarily on my cushion or on my mat. It's in my relationships. 
and to all of my people, you're welcome. <laughs> I it's but it, I want to I want to say you're welcome to myself too. Like thank you for these practices that allow me to operate consistently at that level, not just with the people who are like-hearted and like-minded, not just with the people who make me feel good or who don't annoy me, but with the people, that's where the, the proof is in the pudding, man. You had talked a little bit about this before, the noticing that you're noticing and that becoming aware of. And, mm. you know, yoga is a, a practice of, how is it actually written? Calming the fluctuations of the mind, right? That's one of the definitions of yoga is to? The second sutra. Oh, second sutra. Yes. yes, is calming the fluctuations of the mind. And in order to calm them, you have to recognize when they're going off track. And like, we all have patterns. We all have triggers. We all have the thing that is just kind of who we are or what we do in different circumstances. But when we begin to notice, like for instance, maybe if I'm feeling frustrated, that might be a good time for me to have ice cream. I love to soothe myself with a nice cup of ice cream. And if I'm really feeling a little out of balance, I might put some pistachios on there and I like putting some chocolate nuts in there. I really want to dress up this ice cream depending on exactly how I feel. And that's a pattern. And, you know, I don't really have a big problem with my weight or cholesterol, so I'm going to keep that pattern because it self-soothes and I like it. And I love ice cream. It's one of my favorite foods in the entire world. But the noticing that that's why I'm deciding that I want this big bowl of ice cream right now, that's, I think, where the practice is. When we start to notice, this morning I was telling Sherry before we signed on to record that I was on my mindfulness walk. I went I'm down towards where the lake was. And on the way to the lake is a what is now a very slow-flowing stream. A week ago, when it rained every day, it was pouring through that pathway. But today it was really slow. And thankfully, the bird song where I am is very loud. It has a whole variety of different types of bird songs. So I'm liking, like, starting to notice which bird is making which sound. There is a very, very deep frog that makes sounds over there that making that, like, really hoarse sound that's going on. But as I was walking down toward the lake and passing, I heard the very, very slow trickling of water through the stream. And I stopped and I was like, oh, the stream. And this, the sound, when it entered my awareness, made me pause to stop and just watch that tiny little waterfall that was, you know, the water transitioning over a rock. But then I became aware that I became aware. Which, as you mentioned, you know, kind of takes you out of that moment of awareness, right? I had the awareness, and then I noticed that I had the awareness, and I stopped and paused. So I don't know if that's progression or regression to notice that you noticed, but it was off the map. And I noticed that there was something going on around me when I thought I was very focused in just getting to the lake. And I hope that. Noticing that stream is my metaphor for noticing an agitation that will arise or something that comes up inside me, whether it's uh, something that's going to influence me to be agitated in the way I show up, if there's a trigger that somebody is touching that makes me just want to hug them or be compassionate and consoled to notice 
um, what those things are as they arise and how all of these practices show up in just how I live my life and what stories I tell myself. Are they real? Am I filling in somebody else's after the because, which even though I know the after the because, I still do it. I still, still do, do it. Right. Because we're sure that we know what the other person's yes. intention is, what they're thinking, why they're behaving that way. It's it's almost I mean, we know it it, it because we feel it in our bodies. You yeah. know, we feel it. So it must be true. Yeah. And what's the only thing that's true about what you think is true about another person? It's what you think. But it's what and that you was think. This, that was the same director who um, called, called us turkeys. turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was reminded last night in a conversation to, I was telling a story and, and there was a, a, a retelling of my own story from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, perhaps you could look at it this way. And the, the reframing was me not telling the other person's story. The reframing that was offered to me was like, so what are you thinking about this? How do you feel about that thing? It really turned into how I was interpreting and accepting the situation or not accepting that situation. And then instead of telling the other person's intention or story, noticing how I felt about it so that I could react in a way that was either questioning, was this your intention? And is this what you want, how you wanted to, like, this is what I heard, is that what you were trying to say and getting clarity go figure, getting clarity before I would react seems like a, kind of a good choice. And you may notice too, like if you're someone who's walking this path with consistency, that there will be people and things, interests that, that existed before that no longer hold the same value. You know, that people are all walking in different directions on their own paths. And it brings up the, I mean, it so, sounds so trite now, but that people come into your your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And, you know, it's trite, but it's, it's also true. And the more that we practice, the more clear things become for us, perhaps the less tolerant we are of different frequencies. I won't say higher or lower, because who am I to say that? I mean, I, we, we kind of work with the, the frequencies that, that jive with us, but it may also be that part of that awareness and discernment is letting go, is letting go of people who no longer operate in the same way or feel the same way. And, you know, I'm thinking about the spiritual practice. It's, it's deeply subjective and it's deeply personal. And I know that, again, I don't have a teacher right now. I'm not under the tutelage of any particular person or entity. And though I'm reading this incredible book by Christopher D. Wallace, who I'm still just, it, this book, I just want to download it into my head. I want to study with him. I, he just feels like someone who doesn't play the shame game. And we should talk about this at some point, you know, that I don't think that that's not a way that I learn well. You should have done this or you should have known that or, you know, all it does is make me contract into a tiny little nothing. Um, but I feel expansive in his words. But this path is a real thing to walk and there are certain signs and I'm going to read this. This, I, I actually asked ChatGPT to compile a list of how we know we're making progress on the path. And I'm not going to read the descriptions. I may put them in the show notes. But just as bullet points, if you're interested and you're like, great stories, but how do I know? How do I know? Increased mindfulness, greater compassion, 
emotional stability, enhanced self-awareness, a deepened sense of gratitude, heightened intuition, increased self-acceptance, expanded perspective, improved resilience, and a deeper sense of purpose. Now, these are just a few examples, and there are descriptions. And I also asked, how do you know if you're stuck? And you know, I think we know when we're stuck or we're not progressing. But it can get, not progressing on the path can feel super comfortable. It can feel like the comfort zone, mm -hmm. oh, I have arrived. I am exactly where I want to be. I'm not feeling any pushback, any resistance. And, and, and that's fine. Like be there, but be aware of what that is. And is that something that is progressing you along the path or is it keeping you where you are and, you know, maybe you've progressed enough for now and the big thing will come later. Who knows? Mm. Yeah. Regressions and progressions. Where are we going? And, you know, I like being comfortable. And sometimes I, it takes me a while to realize that I got so comfortable that it's just a rut and that, okay, now it's time to move to the next place. Sometimes that comfort is okay, I need time to digest all of this. As I've said in the past, I'm really, really slow at learning things, but then I have a long, long retention in my life. So thanks for sharing those 10 ways because sometimes it is really hard. The other thing that came to mind while you were talking was the kindness to self, right? Being on the path doesn't have to be huge and grandiose. We all start somewhere and it can be maybe as simple as, you know, being a whole lot more mindful of brushing your teeth, what the toothpaste feels like, what it tastes like. Just start small or your favorite meal, right? If next time you want to make your favorite meal, what do you do? You have to check your, see what you have in your cupboard. Do I have to go to the store and buy ingredients? Where's the recipe? How do I put it together? All of that anticipation that there is in knowing that you're going to have this favorite thing to eat. And then as it finally is plated, what does it look like when you plate it? You know, is it beautiful? Do you arrange it? Like, how does that plating happen? And every single taste, you know, it can be that simple. And you can just say, or I can just say, like making this meal was part of my practice today because I was mindful and intentional and then i enjoyed the shit out of it <laughs> you know we talk so much about the senses in our conversations and in one of my stupors in the last couple of weeks i woke up thinking what if each sense is a portal to another dimension you know and then i started thinking of like willy wonka we don't expect the rivers to be chocolate you know and then i started thinking of the van gogh immersion and you know i haven't seen it but i just imagine you know sort of consumed by these little brush strokes and yeah, just a little food for thought. <laughs> I don't know if that's progression or regression or some kind of, you know, but what if our senses are portals to different dimensions? Yeah. I'm going to practice with that. <laughs> yeah. Especially with my example, the, the uh, sensation of taste, where is that going to take me? Because I've already mentioned ice cream and my favorite meal. <laughs> And what about, you know, my kids like to try different fruits. Like we got a star mm. fruit. I wasn't a big fan of it, you know, but tasting new things, things that I haven't had before, you know, the, it's sort of the new taste and sort of being open to it and being open to familiar flavors that sort of how can that be fresh? We were talking before this too about showing up on the Broadway stage every single day, every performance for countless years. 
I don't know how many years the Simba's dad played in Lion King, but every day showing up, saying the same words, doing the same thing and giving a fresh performance. And I'll tell you, the Lion King, it's interesting that that was the one that kind of came up because it's also, I think the first time I was able to feel prana in my body, that life force energy. And spoiler alert, it's been on Broadway for fucking decades. So if you haven't seen it, I don't know why not. I'm, this is not giving anything away. But the animals come from the back of the house before as the show is starting. And as you're turning and you see them, you know, singing and the music is swelling, my body felt like it was just tingling all over. It was on fire. It was in ice. It was all of the experiences of being in a body just flushing through me. And I've seen The Lion King three times and it happened every time. It was mm. like there was something fresh that they brought to it. It was, that has to be a practice. Acting is a practice. You've got to show up and find something new, a way to make it new every time. The way we have to make the mundane. We talked about Sisyphus. He had to, that hour of consciousness. He had to figure out how to bring meaning into the pushing of the boulder. So maybe in the menial aspects of our lives, these practices can be a reset, a freshening of them each day so that we're not like, oh shit, I got to get up. I got to go to work. I got to do the same fucking thing every day. But maybe it's I wake up and I do my meditation and I touch into I, the unexpected, the things, the rare occurrence of the expected. Look at this. This episode is everything just converging into one that, that we don't know what's going to happen within the things that we know are going to happen. So to be open to the mystery is something that we can, when we're progressing on the path, we're more curious about, I think. Yeah. So we uh, can probably come to a place where we can kind of end on that because we brought mystery and magic together. <laughs> and what better combination of a way to live your life with mystery and magic and mindfulness. We had a lot of M's, mystery, magic, mindfulness, meditation. So add your own M's. And do we have anything else we're supposed to talk about today, Sherry? Yoga Fest is on the 20th, so I don't think you're going to get this. When does this drop? Maybe. Uh, no, because this won't know. drop this week. Yeah. So it, yo, Yoga so Fest we'll is over. This. Yeah, <laughs> Yoga Fest is over. We probably had a really great talk. <laughs> oh, but, but start thinking about Rhythm and Rhyme Retreat, because that's going to be coming up in June. And we are developing a really cool two-day retreat. Details to come. But start thinking about that you want to hang out with us for a couple of days. Yeah. And if there's anything special, because we know that our members from last year for both camp and rhythm and rhyme gave us some great suggestions. But if you're thinking, heck, I really do need a retreat and you have a suggestion of things that you love to do while you're retreating. Hey, anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Let us know. So <laughs> We can include some of your great suggestions as well. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. 
Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time. Thank you.